Welcome everybody uh, and thanks for joining us. Today we are focusing on our recent project uh, that investigates the challenges and issues uh, affecting the delivery of transport infrastructure projects in Australia and New Zealand. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. Um, a little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Here's our structure. We use a program management approach to deliver our work. Uh, there are four programs and each is focused on an operational area of the road system. So the project that we are discussing today was delivered under the transport infrastructure program, which is managed by Rosgapi. Um, a little bit of, uh, of housekeeping for today's session. Our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A for 15 minutes. Uh, the report and the slides for today's session can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, uh, which you can find on the right-hand side of your screen. There is also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions at any time uh, during the webinar. If you could note the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us to um, answer your question as best as we can. Uh, you can also use that same section uh, to let us know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, if your picture freezes or you lose sound, the issue is most likely with your connection. So leaving the webinar, closing the browser, and rejoining uh, the session again usually fixes the problem. Uh, this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also search for Austroads in your podcast app. Um, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, Graham Hobbs, Amy Knowles, and James Smithers. We will first hear from Graham Hobbs. Um, Graham is the director at the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads, or TMR. He leads the pre-qualification and contracts unit, where he's responsible for maintaining TMR's delivery systems and providing expert contractual advice. Graham uh, has more than 30 years experience in delivering significant transport infrastructure projects, including the Ipswich Motorway to Logan Motorway Interchange Project and the Pacific Motorway Upgrade at Daisy Hill. Graham has a particular interest in dispute resolution and avoidance. Our second presenter is Amy Knowles. Amy is a principal economist at WSP. Uh, working closely with government clients to support in both uh, informed investment decisions across a range of transport infrastructure projects. Amy um, has over 15 years professional experience in transport policy, planning and economic appraisal of projects, um, including new rail and road schemes, congestion charging schemes, active transport projects, and rail franchise negotiations. Amy has worked on transport infrastructure challenges in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. And our third presenter, James Smithers. James is a national executive at WSP uh, with over 20 years experience consulting on infrastructure projects. He has worked with the senior executive level of business, specializing uh, in defining and solving complex issues, assisting governments and organizations make strategic investment decisions with a strong grasp um, of the organizational drivers for efficient and effective projects. Recently, James co-authored a paper on setting up projects for success uh, with the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, a big welcome to, uh, to you all. It's great to have you with us. And I will hand over to uh, Graham and Amy in a second. Okay, so uh, thanks, Ekaterina. Um, and apologies, everyone. My uh, webcam decided not to work just before the presentation. so. Unfortunately, you won't be able to see me for this part of the presentation, but um, hopefully you'll still see the slides okay. Um, I'll now just introduce the broader team. Um, so, um, firstly, I'd just like to acknowledge James and Amy, who did most of the work in delivering this project, um, and they've done a fantastic job in pulling together some really useful information. Um, I had the easier task of managing the project, Ross Guppy had an interest, as Ekaterina has already said. Um, Ross um, 
looks after the transport in infrastructure program. Um, so Ross had an interest from that perspective. Um, and the, um, the project outcomes were reviewed by the Project Delivery Task Force and the project was ultimately approved by the Australia's board. So um, at the start of the project, a working group was established as a subgroup to the Project Delivery Task Force. This allowed each of the jurisdictions to provide input as the project progressed. As you can see from the slide, all states and territories and New Zealand had representation on the working group and were given an opportunity to share their experiences and learnings. So um, I guess just a bit of uh, background um, to the project. A primary function of Austroads is to solve problems for transport agencies in Australia and New Zealand. One of the ways it does this is to deliver projects under the various programs that it runs. This project was an initiative of the Project Delivery Task Force and came about through identification and discussion of a range of challenges faced by jurisdictions in delivering their infrastructure projects. The task force was concerned that we may not always be getting the best value for money in the delivery of our projects and that there are opportunities to improve. With the national spend on transport infrastructure running into the billions of dollars each year, there is a significant opportunity to leverage even a small improvement in productivity and efficiency. Austroads member agencies want to see our industry continue to improve the way we deliver, operate and maintain our transport infrastructure, which is so fundamental to our economy and our community. This study investigates where our challenges lie and highlights where we as an industry are managing those challenges well and where we could do better. The Austroads Board commissioned WSP to investigate these challenges and today we will be hearing from them on what they found. I'll now hand over to Amy who will be explaining the approach taken to this study. Thank you Graham and thank you Katerina and thank you everyone for coming along today. Uh, it's important to understand before we start off that we did start this study with a very clear direction which was that we should investigate the challenges that Austroads members are currently facing when delivering the smaller scale of road transport infrastructure projects. Uh, and when I say small, I don't mean insignificant. We were asked to look into the challenges of delivering road infrastructure projects up to $100 million in value. <clears throat> there were many advantages of keeping the scope focused on sub $100 million projects. It, it meant that we could avoid getting drawn into the vortex of discussions around the mega projects and it also meant we talked to a, a broader section of the industry. For example, there are more than 500 local government organisations in Australia and 78 in New Zealand. The size of projects delivered by local government varies widely but there is no doubt that local government is extremely experienced at dealing with these challenges. And of course, Keeping the scope to 100 million was not rigidly enforced. We spoke to stakeholders who had very relevant experience and observations from delivering a range of projects over 100 million and some up to 500 million. But regardless of project size, the fundamentals of delivery are, are the same. Every project manager accepts that through the process of delivering the project, there will inevitably be some level of trade-off between scope, time and budget and the level of quality that can be accepted. Nonetheless, it's still important to understand where we as an industry can improve. So in the next slide, I'll explain the process we took to do this study and how we engaged with industry. We used uh, three different approaches to investigate the topic. We started off with a literature review and found some very clear insights from the I-bodies, Infrastructure Australia, Infrastructure New South Wales and so on, from the audit offices and from journals and other publications. I mean, look, Clearly many of those articles tended to focus on larger or even mega projects, but we were still able to distill relevant insights for the sub $100 million road industry. Uh, we also ran an online survey which was shared through Austroad's social media channels and gained 113 anonymous responses. So thank you to those of you on the call who took part in that. And although the respondents did not have to give their name, we did ask them to let us know where they worked in general terms and as you can see from the graphic the majority were from different government organisations but we did also get a quarter of responses from the contracting industry and also consultants and other peak bodies and others. Now the final the longest running part of the engagement was where we spoke with um, industry experts across a range of different jurisdictions. We made a big effort to ensure we could speak to 
representatives from most state jurisdictions in, in New Zealand and from different industry sectors. We were very fortunate to be able to speak to people who had a wide range of experience. We spoke to 38 interviewees and about 60% of them had worked in the industry for more than 20 years. We spoke to program delivery directors from major agencies. We spoke to project managers from local government. We spoke to contractors, to consultants, uh, peak groups and private road operators. And on the next slide, I'll show some of those sample insights from those interviewees. And this is probably the perfect opportunity to uh, thank all those experts who provided very thoughtful and sometimes passionate insights into their own experiences and their recommendations for improving how we work as an industry. To enable them to feel free to provide frank observations, we have not identified any interviewee in this report. However, the graphic does show the names of organisations where they worked, uh, with the exception of two smaller companies, which would have uh, identified the interviewee if we'd named the company. On this slide, we've also incorporated some quotes, which are direct comments made by interviewees. We've included them because they give an indication of some typical observations and also really demonstrate the answers to this question are not, are not simple. Optimising project delivery will not be achieved through acting on just one issue. Optimising project delivery will come from a suite of different actions and it's important to understand that the need for those actions may differ depending on where you're sitting or on your jurisdiction. But thinking about all these quotes, two are really fundamental. Firstly, the observation there from a respondent from a state road agency who observed, planning and design can be seen to get in the way of construction, but the reality is pennies spent here saves pounds in construction. That distills a very common observation and insight from the research. Project delivery is optimised when appropriate early planning and pre-work has been completed. Secondly, another respondent from local government made a very good summary of the challenges of accelerating project delivery when she observed that while road managers are ready and able to go ahead and accelerate delivery, it's about how you effectively communicate and explain what other things can't be done. Respondents explained that when choosing to accelerate delivery, there are predictable impacts on their ability to deliver other projects in the pipeline and predictable risks which may eventuate due to the lack of pre-work or consultation or planning or design time. Respondents were able to give us examples of projects which have been accelerated very successfully when the risks have been articulated and, and assigned pragmatically. So in summary, and as demonstrated on the previous slide, the combined engagement, the literature review, the online survey, and the interviews resulted in a range of insights. And some challenges were clearly quite specific to individual jurisdictions. One agency mentioned the need to often account for possible unexploded ordnance. Some jurisdictions have had recent experience in accelerating projects due to earthquake damage and to bushfires. Nonetheless, as highlighted in the previous slide, it was possible to draw out two overarching themes which we thought underpinned most of the challenges which we identified. The next few slides will highlight these two overarching themes and also demonstrate how interlinked all these challenges are. So on this slide, we're showing the two overarching themes which came out of the analysis. Firstly, that more time and resources during the early stages of project planning to scope, to consult, to design and investigate is very helpful in successfully delivering projects. And secondly, accelerating project delivery must always result in a compromise, whether it is to the scope, the cost or the quality. Interviewees agree there are times when it is appropriate and sometimes necessary and important to accelerate delivery of projects. Some interviewees spoke to examples of situations where they had rapidly delivered essential road infrastructure projects in the wake of disaster recovery, such as after the Queensland floods, after bushfires, and after the Kaikoura earthquake. Interviewees also noted that occasionally existing project pipelines have needed to be rapidly reviewed because community needs have changed. More recently, we've seen a situation where governments have seeking economic stimulus projects to be rapidly identified to stimulate the recovery of our economies after the pandemic. So it was recognised there are two potentially contradictory factors. One, that additional time and resources in the early stages of the project does support successful delivery. And secondly, accelerating projects to deliver when early works, consultation, planning and design has not been completed means compromises must be made, whether it's to scope or cost or quality. 
So moving on from those two core themes, we're going to show how all of the different challenges are really very interlinked. In this, this slide here, we're talking about one of the key, the key concerns, which is about risk and treatment of risk. It's a, it was a commonly raised concern, and it's particularly an issue when project planning timescales have been compressed, as, as they must be when a project is selected for accelerated delivery. Interviewees commented that when you accelerate projects and compress planning time, you must accept more risk. And the sort of risks that they talked about were potential land contamination, cultural risk, uh, need to relocate services, limited access, planning approvals and, and community opposition. But most interviewees felt that risks were normally able to be mitigated. In fact, one interviewee summed it up as saying, risks don't ever come completely out of the box and are genuinely knowable in most cases. Councils and agency interviewees recommended early works with utility providers to plan and planning for risk during the design stage. Agency interviewees felt that with sufficient time to prepare and plan and sharing of lessons learned, most risks would be identified and managed. New Zealand interviewees referred to the New Zealand Construction Accord, which emphasises that risk in the sector should be rebalanced so that it sits with the party best able to manage it. In fact, the New Zealand Transport Agency has decided to carry the risk of all underground utilities and not transfer that risk to contractors. This position in New Zealand was explained to be informed by the experience of post-earthquake recovery works. And it was clear that poor management of risks leads to one party paying over the odds. Either risks are overestimated and taxpayers pay a premium, or alternatively, risks are underestimated and contractors are forced into a combative variation recovery mode, which in the worst case can mean that they go out of business. Many interviewees recommended strongly working with contractors during tender phases to understand the risk. This was a common thread from the online survey too. Over 80% of respondents said contractors should be involved in identifying risks prior to tender. And nearly 90% of respondents agreed that working collaboratively to prepare contract documents would deliver and understand risk would deliver better outcomes. When uh, project delivery must be accelerated, New Zealand's approach to allocating services at risk on a cost plus approach was recommended and contractors on bushfire recovery projects in Australia also recommended allocating risk on a cost plus approach. Now I'll move on to the next slide, which covers the linked challenges which can, affer, can occur when design quality is affected. A very, very common observation and concern for interviewees is that design quality is commonly less than ideal. The online survey showed that nearly half of all respondents felt that a top five action for them would be to increase time and resources for design development. In fact, of all respondents who, respond, who answered this question, 80% said the more effort on front-end engineering design would lower overall costs for delivery. In the interview stage, road managers said, it is common to receive design drawings which have not had sufficient review. One interviewee said, look, what we get is really ordinary. Interviewees said that many design problems could have been addressed with more time and project planning stage, confirming, nailing down the scope, completing early investigative works on ground condition and utilities, and especially more time engaging with community and key stakeholders. Some road managers reported receiving designs which were not based on sufficient understanding of the site. A Henry Ford production line approach to design, one, one manager said. One local government road manager reported that bridge designers were customarily presenting very conservative and costly solutions until they were able to change to a project manager with more design experience. A common observation was the team on the tender is not the team you get delivering the work. Some state agencies reported that the large mega projects are taking up the resource pool of talented people and consultants. This leads on to the next slide where we will talk about the challenges in recruiting and retaining experienced staff. So it was clear that following on from the previous slide, design quality is often very much related to the challenges of attracting and retaining experienced staff. And this challenge was perceived to affect all parts of the industry. Road managers reported, we are all suffering from capacity capability challenges. Local government, particularly in rural areas, reported that it's a real challenge to recruit and retain experienced staff. Consultants and contractors reported that there is a lack of informed buyers and agency staff, meaning that reverse briefs are often developed, but without enough guidance from road managers. 
contractors reported that instead of working with contract administrators who are long-term road agency employees, often contract administrators tend to be short-term external consultants with less understanding of the organisation and less knowledge of the project drivers. So these capacity capability challenges were felt to be reflected in design quality and also in how well risks were managed and also in project planning and scoping. So I'm not sure why that's jumped forward. Also on the next slide I'll explain how interactions with utility companies was also a challenge which benefits from experienced staff. So just going back to that, utility companies. Working with utility companies to complete road projects was identified by both interviewees and the online survey as a clear problem. Respondents felt that utility companies were incentivized for commercial imperatives rather than the public good of delivering better transport infrastructure. With very limited transparency around the cost breakdown for service relocations, some respondents felt that utility relocations could be more accurately described as renewal or upgrade works. Consultants and agency staff reported thinking that utility companies tend to be under-resourced to work with them. And contractors said that more time relief for delays from utility companies would be realistic. Local government staff observed that in an infrastructure boom, boom, they felt council requests were often lowest priority and saying just to get pedestrian signals powered up is a horrible process. Agency staff, contractors and consultants all suggested the pro industry would benefit if there was clear policy in place to clarify the responsibilities and the process for dealing with utility providers. Uh, now at this point, it's a good opportunity to draw all of your attention to a recent paper published by the Australian Federal Government just, uh, just over a week ago. The Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications published a paper called Improving the Telecommunications Powers and Immunities Framework. And we've included a link, I think there will be shortly a link in the chat to this webinar. Uh, Please, if you do feel strongly on this topic, you could take the time to read that paper and contribute your comments on what reforms you think are required. That would be very helpful. But in any, in any case, the challenges of dealing with utility companies are very interlinked with the issues that we've already covered. The benefit of more design and planning time was clear, as respondents reported. The advantages of early pre-works to locate utilities well before construction started. And on the next slide, we will go to talk about how tender prices are more likely to be sustainable where pre-work has been completed to understand all these issues such as utilities relocation. Well, firstly, just a reminder to you all that you can send questions through for the Q&A at the end of this session. This can be done by entering your questions in the chat function as Ekaterina explained. Uh, and if you can, can you please include your slide number to let us know which slide your question refers to. So moving on to uh, this question about unsustainable bids. A very common concern raised during the interviews was that too often the cheapest bidder for a project is selected. 60% of respondents to the online survey said that one of their top five actions would be government should increase the weighting of non-price attributes when awarding contracts. It was also clear that different jurisdictions do have very different tender selection processes. But pretty common across all jurisdictions to agree that when the cheapest that sorry that when the cheapest bid is selected, there is a risk that contractors are going to try to recover the money through aggressive variations. And as for all these uh, challenges, this problem is very interwoven with the other issues. The chance of a project being procured at the genuine cost, what it will price of what it will cost to build, is higher if there is a good understanding of the risks and if the design process has been based on effective planning, scoping and consultation. Road managers explained that their tender selection processes were typically more nuanced than just selecting on price alone, and non-price criteria such as safety, past performance and methodology and team were all normally important parts of the selection process. Nonetheless, the weighting that was said to be put on price compared to non-price criteria was commonly said to be much higher. So this slide talks to another key concern which was raised during the study. This was that project published project pipelines are often very flexible. Road managers reported that most agencies do publish their project pipelines. However, it was perceived that published pipeline, pipelines are often changed or altered at very short notice. Now all sectors agreed that, agree that they were important and contractors and government and consultants all agreed recommended more clarity about the pipelines. 
agency and contractor interviewees said, for example, industry gears up ahead, up or down ahead of time and invests in the appropriate capital to pursue the job. However, a very typical observation from a state road agency interviewee with more than 15 years experience was, the pipeline is ephemeral, dark horse projects pop out of nowhere and we work as hard as possible to deliver them. Contractors said they want reliable project pipelines to help them invest in plans, saying it is difficult to plan and organise resources when firms don't know what infrastructure projects are coming. Contractors also said that there was benefit in staggering projects to share the expertise across projects and they emphasised the disbenefit of planning to short-term cycles. There was a bit of variation depending on local government with some local government interviewees reported working to long-term 10-year plans where they said council determines the priorities but councillors don't change the projects. Other council interviewees reported much shorter project pipelines. Council interviewees also noted the challenges of central agencies changing project pipelines for external contracts, reducing their capacity to plan for tenders and funding. So having recognised all these different actions or challenges which affect the smooth delivery of road transport infrastructure projects, this slide confirms, I tries to demonstrate that all these factors are very interrelated and therefore actions to support the industry often will address more than one theme and clearly uh, significant changes to the way that projects are conceived, developed, delivered and assessed will take time to implement. Nonetheless, there are opportunities to improve delivery in the short term and also with a longer view. So I'm going to hand over now to my colleague, James Smithers, who will take us through the recommended actions we have identified based on this research and engagement with the industry. Thanks uh, very much, Amy, and also, also Graham, um, and to all the contributors who uh, provided insights and observations uh, for, for the study. Um, it's actually, it's been a really interesting exercise, um, and I think we can be quite proud of the innovations that we are individually and as organisations uh, introducing to, to improve project delivery um, across Australia and New Zealand. What we do need to do, however, is focus on lifting up um, elements of the industry to keep improving. Uh, and I'll quickly talk through some of these opportunities um, to relate back to many of the themes that Amy's been talking through. Um, we've broken these out based upon timeframes, looking at a, a short, medium and, and longer term. So yeah, the, the, the slide see now, uh, we're talking about the short term opportunities to improve. And so that is, what can Austroads do to support our industry to improve within the next two years? We can see two main opportunities. Um, firstly, to work with agencies to better communicate the implications of accelerating projects, and also to manage or mitigate the impacts of accelerating projects. We live in a world where project, project acceleration is often an important government tool. For example, as an economic stimulus measure that we are seeing uh, right now. We understand that project acceleration is inevitable in cases of disaster recovery and in situations where community needs change. Some, some jurisdictions have excellent recent experience managing the process of delivering to an accelerated schedule. <clears throat> this action is about developing best practice guidance on how to communicate and mitigate the impacts of accelerating projects. Second, the second short-term action uh, referred to in the slide um, is, is aligned. Um, this action is that, that Austroads should work with agencies to to promote champions of excellence that we're using. Identifying those existing innovators and experts who are able to dis disseminate best practice or lessons learned across jurisdictions. These champions of excellence could potentially um, support across topics from uh, topics such as scope definition, project management, traffic management, stakeholder engagement, communications, um, and potentially emerging, emerging technology opportunities, to name a few. Okay, moving on to the, media, the medium term, um, that's on, on this slide you're seeing now. Uh, so this is, this is saying, what, um, what can we do to support the industry to improve uh, over the, the time frame of two to five years from now? Firstly, we're suggesting that agencies should be stri striving to, to publish rolling five-year project pipelines for all sub-$100 million projects. I think Amy talked to um, 
yeah, the recognition that many of those uh, many agencies do have those pipelines, but some of the issues associated with those right now. So ideally, those pipelines should be online, updated regu regularly as priorities change, um, and include information like timing for the stages, uh, even at their estimates stage, the overall capex, um, plan procurement approach, plan for delivery approach, uh, some, some of the details of the um, of the potential key contacts for the actual agencies um, leading that project. Uh, obviously, the, the, the scope itself, and also information for unfunded projects that are in the planning phases where a budget allocation may not be available at that point in time to see that longer-term pipeline. Secondly, we're recommending Australia should work with jurisdictions to prepare best practice guidance on managing utility, utility relocations and their impacts on, on transport infrastructure projects, using case st studies from um, yeah, across Australia and New Zealand, uh, Australia members. As part of this task, Australia will need to work with jurisdictions to um, obtain evidence of current cost program uh, and pragmatic insights from interactions with utility and service companies, and bring that, bring that together. Uh, at this point, just a quick reminder, I think Amy did mention this before, uh, around the Australian Federal Government has just published a paper called Improving the Telecommunications Powers and Immunities Framework, um, which I think is on the, um, in the chat for the webinar. And again, if you're able to read the, read the paper and contribute your comments, that would be, uh, be great. Going on to the next slide, uh, looking at the long term. Um, so we're talking about yeah, longer term opportunities to improve, that, that is, what can Ausroads do? Um, support the industry, looking sort of that longer term past five years. Firstly, there are a lot of things to be done here, and we've distilled it down to, to a couple. Um, firstly, we think important and very beneficial action would be to improve cost estimation capability and, capability and resource. Australia would be, would be tasks, tasked to work with agencies and develop a, a cross-jurisdiction database of outturn costs for projects. This would then support agency specialists to develop that improved cost estimates at, at, at the early stages of project planning and definition. Um, that, that, that sort of database would need to, obviously need to be like, put fit for purpose, purpose and sufficiently detailed that cost, costs could be contextualized. You need to have all the information such as project type, location, the greenfield, brownfield, or CB, CBD, urban or, or rural, land acquisition aspects, um, construction materials, utilities involved, environmental mitigation costs, and uh, and so forth. So just ensuring, obviously, it's only going to be relevant if it is contextualised appropriately. The second longer term action would be to um, to build more in, more informed buyers. Um, and again, Amy, Amy talked talk to this a little. This action would require um, agencies to work to consider appropriate incentive schemes to attract and retain qualified staff. Um, I think Amy re referred to the fact that, um, yeah, there, there, there are many times when, yeah, it's difficult in uh, particularly rural areas to actually attract some of those staff. Agencies would need to support growth of expertise with national training or graduate schemes as well. So look, thank you, thank you very much for your attention. Um, to the, to the presentation today. Uh, we're pleased to be able to share these observations with you. Um, and I'll now pass control of the webinar back to Ekaterina, as I believe there's um, time for some uh, yep. Q&A. Yeah, I hope everyone now can see my screens and I invite all of the presenters to the Q&A um, session. Uh, please share your webcams if you can. Um, thanks so much. Uh, great project, uh, very interesting presentation. And we have a bunch of questions uh, from um, our participants. And I will start with a general question just to kick off. Um, so do these recommendations apply to both uh, local and state government? Hi, hi. I, I could answer that one maybe. Um, I think, yes. Yep. Yes, the recommendations do apply to both local and state government. Um, I think I did mention briefly that clearly not all recommendations apply to all jurisdictions because they were different. Um, there were different needs depending on uh, the location, but in principle, the sort of the the recommendations do apply to local and state governments and national governments, I guess. But but not all of the not all jurisdictions will um, need to probably move do as much work in the same area as others. Do you have anything to add, James or Graham, 
to this one, or I'll just move to the next I'll, question. I'll, I'll jump in, Katarina. Look, I, I think, yeah, as Amy mentioned, I mean, the, uh, I think the, look, looking across those actions, um, uh, some, some of those are much more, much more focused on the uh, state government level. Um, and but I think that they might, while, while all of them are sort of somewhat applicable, I'd say that, that, that uh, some would need to be tailored really to be appropriate to, to the local environment. But overall, the, I guess the, the overarching essence of, of those actions is applicable across them all. Thanks, James. Uh, and I'm going to take us to slide um, 15. So you said, uh, well, the report highlights that there are two core themes, uh, and one of them is uh, time and resources in project planning. So many organizations, uh, councils in particular, face the problem of limited resources. So um, what your advice would be uh, how this could be addressed? Um, I think, well, maybe it's, it's a very tricky question, and I, I agree, and I think it was it was a fair observation that um, we did receive from interviewees that uh, certainly in local government, there are the challenges of resourcing can be even more marked than in other parts of the industry. So we hope that these combined actions will work to support local government in terms of, um, I think one of our early actions was recommended about uh, sort of sharing uh, lessons learned and best practice around uh, communicating impacts of accelerating projects. So that could be something that, was, that could be shared with local government and also about amplifying excellence. So sharing those, getting those people that really have been innovating and doing great work to resource them to be able to just work with other organisations, other other agencies to to bring up those skill sets in a wider way. But um, in terms of the time and resources, I think that maybe I'm not sure. Do you have anything to add to that, James? Look, I guess what I'd add is just, just around that, I mean, that compressed planning Time frame, and that's what that that then allows. It doesn't allow for the appropriate resources to have the, the time in terms of planning. It really is. I mean, what we saw, um, yeah, uh, a problem when particularly when that that, that time frame gets compressed, um, and sometimes that can be uh, due to political drivers or or sometimes just changes that, that do occur that really push the push the, the planning um, down. And I would just really, I guess, from a project. Uh, and really prioritise not 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 compressing that uh, wherever possible and having that time to plan appropriately. I might actually just add in there. Also, I've just thought of something I should have mentioned. Um, um, in our report, which I hope you'll, you, many of you will have a chance to read, there is an example there of a um, process chart which one of our interviewees was kind enough to share, and that was a local government interviewee. Uh, and they talked about how um, this talked about the process they are encouraging their officers to follow when asked to accelerate projects and how to really communicate the challenges that might result in accelerating projects. Again, not saying you can't do it, not, but saying when you do have to um, bring through projects forward and reduce times, this is how you explain what compromises might need to be made. So that might be um, of, of use for those for those local government representatives too. Thanks, Amy. Uh, Graham. Uh, yeah, I think just to add to that um, as well, um, I think just having an awareness of the challenges that can be posed by um, not having that proper planning up, up front. Um, so if projects don't need to be accelerated, um, not leaving things, I guess, till the last minute and allowing enough time up front for the, for the proper planning um, and just having that awareness of the challenges that might flow out of that if um, enough time isn't allowed. So, um, so I think the report sort of raises awareness of some of the issues that can sort of follow on from not having that upfront up planning. So um, the report seems very timely given the push by um, uh, Australian governments to use road infrastructure projects to stimulate the economy following the COVID-19 down downturn. So lots of projects are accelerated and designers are under a lot of pressure. So how can we get politicians and um, uh, treasurers to recognize the risks associated with this fast uh, track projects, um, including long-term economic impacts? Yeah, I think it's uh, there's okay. a probably a you go, Graham. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in first. I guess. Um, yeah, I, I guess again, it's a, around raising awareness, and um, I mean, there's going to be all sorts of reasons why projects do need to be fast tracked, whether it be natural disasters or, or other things. Um, so I think it's about um, 
appropriately informing the decision makers and sort of, mm -hmm. I guess, costing, um, you know, appropriately costing um, the the um, the impacts of accelerating projects so that when people are making decisions, they can do that in an informed way, um, not not an ad hoc sort of way. So, um, um, you know, the, I guess that's what we, one way I would see that we can improve practices is just um, ensuring that there's proper information provided to informed decision makers. Thank you, Graeme. I think maybe the challenge of um, the difference in the economic stimulus package as compared to an emergency recovery is, I guess, it's we, everyone can understand the need um, when you're re responding to a disaster situation, and that's probably it makes it a bit more straightforward. And in this case, when you're coming up with a package for a stimulus, there's more more points to consider. One of the most straightforward options, obviously, is to look at your existing project pipeline, and hopefully, there are projects there which make sense to to bring forward and deliver more quickly. But I think it's like you, like you said, Graham. It's about being pragmatic and thinking about what the risks might be, and really communicating those risks and allowing for them. I think the um, communicating with those stakeholders that are going to be effective and discussing how you're going to manage potential potential risks which come up, and and um, and then communicating upwards about what the the knock-on effects of 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 bringing these projects forward might might be. And as you said, probably allowing um, increased budget for um, for risk. Speaking of risks, so uh, one of the participants is asking, would quantifying risks help to reduce the temptation to submit unrealistic costing uh, during tender? Uh, is there any commonly accepted methodology for pricing risks on infrastructure con construction projects? I think, Graham, you might be the, the most um, yeah. best, best person to answer this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm not um, not really aware of any sort of common um, approaches as such. Um, it's not an area that I normally get involved with, um, um, but I, I guess it, it's it really sort of boils down to having a proper understanding of the of the risks um, in order to be able to price them appropriately um, is is key to. Um, you know, to, to quantifying those or putting a dollar figure on those risks um, is having a good understanding of those risks in the first place. Mm. Not sure if you want to add yeah, anything, Amy or James, um, to that. Yeah, I could jump in, Graham. I mean, there's the, I mean, we know there's the, sort of the Monte Carlo sort of assessments, a sort of approach to to quantifying those, those identifying, quantifying those risks, looking at um, uh, likelihood and impact. And, um, if, if there is a, a better understanding of the sort of outturn costs of many projects, what that will highlight is you know, some of the some of the the cost impacts of some of those where those risks have actually materialised. You'll be able to see what what has that, how much of an impact has that had on projects, and to then to actually use that and feed that back in to inform those risks risk assessments upfront will give you a, a um, yeah a more real um, yeah estimation and allowance for for those risks thank you thanks james um another question uh in relation to slide 17 so um the online survey and the interviews showed that design um, is often suboptimal and one of the participants is saying that there is a quite often a communication gap between uh designers and uh, project delivery teams and if they uh, did communicate um, some of the issues uh, potentially could be predicted and sorted out uh, before um, um, when the designs are almost complete. So do you have any advice um, to improve that? Hmm. I can probably I can jump, jump in to start with. Here you go, James. You go, Graham. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, yeah, I guess one, one comment um, would be to get um, constructors involved in doing constructability reviews um, as the design is being developed. And I know that's been looked at by, by some jurisdictions in the past. Um, the challenges with that are um, then um, ensuring that if that constructor then wants to be involved in, in tendering and bidding the, the construction works later on that, um, um, that, you, that you know they're not perceived as having an unfair advantage I guess, I guess if they've been involved in reviewing the designs um, further upstream so there's, there's challenges around um, those sort of property type issues 
Um, but having said that, um, you know, there's clearly value in having some constructability input into the designs um, and ensuring that they're, you know, they're buildable and, and minimising the risk of, um, of, of construction issues when, when it goes into the construction phase. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know that, um, you know, at this point we've necessarily got a, a silver bullet sort of uh, solution, but, um, but clearly we do need to get constructors more involved in the design reviews. Thanks, Graeme. Um, I think it's LinkedIn. So I was going to say, I was just, I was just going to add to that, um, just saying it is LinkedIn, as you say, Graeme, to that. And also, been the, the clearly, people pointed out they didn't believe the designs they were receiving had been perhaps reviewed sufficiently mm -hmm. for the purpose. And that also, to some degree, is a reflection on uh, the capacity or the capability of, of the team preparing or the, or the review ability. And that's that, that industry. Um, strength, I guess, point which we also touched on. So it's about having the right people available to provide those reviews um, before designs are, are finished. Um, speaking um, of having right people available, so you said that um, retaining skilled staff uh, was one of the challenges reported by um, government. Are there any ways to support project managers and um, equip them with the necessary skills and knowledge to do the work? Well, I think one of the first answers is we're hoping that, that by having these actions around uh, sharing sharing those uh, champions, uh, getting those champions of excellence. And there are people doing amazing things across all the different jurisdictions and really innovating and really doing fantastic best practice. So getting those people um, but, but more of a of, of a, an opportunity to share that knowledge is is part of the um, the, the hope of this of this study. So that so they they will then be able to um, help those project managers to work with their solutions, but it, that that's a that's probably a short term, and then it should be also be part of the longer term aspiration, I guess, to make it um, to support those to support retaining and, and training schemes within within organisations within agencies within agencies. Uh, we have another participant, and uh, he's sharing his experience. He's saying that uh, quite often design consultants are letting go of experienced and older workforces. They have a high salary. Um, so, um, did this survey, uh, as the result of this survey, did you find these as the cause for sort of um, 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 cause of loss of the experienced engineers and um, subsequently the lack of skills? I can't say that was actually raised as an observation, but it was raised that there. But the more the explanation, I guess, that we did receive was that just the, um, particularly in the areas we're talking, the locations um, we were talking about this, particularly the volume of work underway, the number of infrastructure projects underway um, was part of. That was one of the reasons people raised that as a as an issue. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you, Graham James. Um, would you like to add anything to that? I'll take us to slide 19. Um, so working with utility companies, you said, is quite problematic. So how um, utility providers can be incentivized to, to be more supportive? I'll let you go, James. Look, I, I think it's like, firstly, I'd say is like, this is a really comp complex area. Um, and there are sort of various ways of dealing with with this. And there's sort of a sort of a, a top-down le legislative aspect, and there's the, and there's a, a bottom-up aspect of how they can be be, be involved. Um, the um, and I think the the incentivisation probably needs to be more driven by that top-down um, approach. But uh, I think what we saw was sort of just re recommendations on working more closely with um, with the utility providers at an early at an early stage. Um, so they sort of so they actually under, at least at least understand the impact of uh, yeah any delays that they that they may cause on a project, um, mm. and uh, and try and really drive them to to really be more more, more reactive. Um, Amy. Uh -oh. I know just to add to that, uh, sorry, yeah, um, just to add to that, James, too. I know some jurisdictions have had some success with. Um, rather than trying to transfer all of the risk to the construction contractor and dealing with the utility providers, actually having um, some uh, a client representative who deals with the utility providers. And that, that can often work better um, as well because the, um, 
the client can can sometimes or sometimes has fairly long-standing relationships with the utility providers, whereas the contractors don't necessarily have those relationships. So, um, for example, if if the jurisdiction sets up a like a, a specialist role that um, primarily deals with utility authorities um, and builds a good relationship with them, they can sort of work their way through issues more expediently when they arise, um, more so than if the contractor is trying to establish a relationship for the first time and, and running into problems. So, um, so you know, options like that um, can be worth considering as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Graham. Without, without yeah, obviously. It's a little of influence that the, the, yeah, the agency can have compared to the contractor if they, if they have those established mm -hmm. relationships looking across a, a longer term perspective. Um, yeah, definitely have an impact. Yeah, I was going to say that something like that too, which just, was just aligned to that, which was that um, on, on observation, based on the interviews, I think that the most successful sort of, uh, a lot, the most positive interactions with utility companies tended to be with those with those agency staff that have been there for a long time, built up those relationships or had that quite a good uh, long term, even planning with, worked planning in parallel with their local um, providers to really try and minimise disruption and work together. And that was seemed to be the most positive uh, respondents to the, that, sort of, that sort of topic. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to take us to slide uh, 25. We have a few questions in relation to that. Um, so why do you show risk up the top when it's also a big issue um, in bid selection? Um, and uh, one of our participants is saying that often had contractors also choose the lowest bid from subcontractors and these subcontractors undertake significant work on behalf of the head contractor. So how this problem can be solved? Well, I think the first point Please of it, I'd like jump to in to start that. with. Um, yeah. Here we go. Yep. Oh, yep. Okay. If you want to go first, Amy. Well, I was just going to say something a bit simplistic, really, which is that we we absolutely agreed all these these actions were very interrelated, and it was just about trying to present them in a uh, straightforward way. Because certainly, you're right uh, that that um, not knowing enough about the risks doesn't does influence the choice of the bid, um, the, you know, the tender selection process as well, and it's and they are very closely related. So that that's we we agree, and that and that is um, that's certainly part of the report as well. So that, that I would just make that comment. Sorry, Graham. Oh, yeah, I was just going to add um, as well that I, I'm aware that some jurisdictions do. Um, look at um, at low bids and, and scrutinise the low bids a, a bit more than um, um, so. So, for example, they might have an unusually low bid um, type policy where um, um, extra extra scrutiny is applied to to those low bids to just demonstrate that they um, they can be delivered um, for the price. So, um, um, so I guess that that's another way of looking at things too, not just necessarily. Um, going with with the lowest price, and and so I guess the way that sort of works is that normally um, if if a, a low bid sort of falls outside a certain percentage below the mean or the median price, um, then that then it qualifies as an unusually low bid or a low bid um, that then sort of sets in place a process for um, for you know more heavily scrutinising that bid and if it sort of um, passes and ticks ticks all the boxes then it can still be um, further considered but if the bid can't be justified then um, then it, you know there's an opportunity to eliminate the bid at that point so um, so I think I think just um, and and a few jurisdictions are looking at those sorts of arrangements these days so. Um, I think that certainly helps to um, avoid having unsustainable bids um, ongoing. Thanks, Graham. Um, I will take us to slide uh, 25, where we 22, I think, where we talked about project pipelines. So, um, long-term pipelines are very difficult to maintain, obviously, uh, especially when political cycles are so short. So, do you have any suggestions on ways to manage these two um, competing timeframes? Hmm. Sammy, um, 
Oh, well, that's why. Do you want to go? I can, I can, yeah, to you. I, I can jump in if you like. Um, mm. Yeah, I guess, I mean, most of the jurisdictions do have a forward program of some sorts. Um, and normally those forward programs are, are reasonably firm for, you know, one to two years out. And then they, they become less firm as you sort of go on. Um, I think, you know, it, it's unavoidable that changes will happen. Um, but I think the important thing is to communicate as early as possible when changes do occur and the reasons why those changes are occurring um, is really probably the best we can do. I, I don't think we can ever have a situation where we've got an absolutely set in cement um, program for sort of five years out. Um, that is just not going to happen. Um, there, there will be changes for all sorts of reasons for, you know, as we've spoken about earlier today, natural disasters and, and things like that happen. Um, that nobody can predict. Um, so there, there's always going to be a, um, be changes to programs. It, it's really about communicating those changes as early as possible and the reasons why. I think that's so a great much, answer, Graham. I'll, I'll just add that I think it's about, um, as, you, as we, you know, once you've uh, agreed that, you know, it's up to the decision makers to decide, to identify there is a need to accelerate some projects and, then I guess um, as an industry, we just need to be very clear, as you say, about communicating what that what that does to the rest of the pipe, pipeline and what those challenges are. And then as long as that's um, if, we're, if we're able to communicate those uh, those impacts, I think that that really is, 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 all, is all you can hope for. And to sort of make sure that the, the new public the new pipeline is amended accordingly, that's that that's probably the ideal. Thanks so much, Amy. Um, and I, I could just add to that, Katarina, just just in terms of the I mean the the I mean, we're always going to have to live within these election cycles, and I think, um, I think bet between them, there there is going to be there is going to be change. Um, but at least with, within within one cycle, to to encourage and and drive um, the government to really uh, be clear on the commitments and stick to them. And I and I think if you look across the country, there are some yeah some jurisdictions that have moved quite a long way in terms of being much more solid about how they're making those those uh, investment decisions. Uh, in which case they are um, more solidly locked in, less at the whims of um, uh, various changes or uh, of particular preferences. Thanks so much, James. Um, I'll take us to slide 25. Um, and the question is, was there any discussion on sustainable climate change in the industry to reduce energy and, um, and the carbon footprint in building roads um, in design and construction? I, look, I, I could just jump in. I, I guess um, the first, in the first instance, that wasn't something that was raised, I guess, by respondents as, as a challenge for them in delivering projects at, at this time. But I'd certainly uh, think it would be part of that point about uh, sharing lessons learned and understanding what what we can do better as an industry. Um, that's one of those great example of something that we should be working towards and sharing how 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 it is done better. So that's. That's probably the best way of handling, um, hopefully working to, to improve the way we do that, do manage climate change and do support. And I also know that, uh, like, I was going to say, I also know that Elstra has, has, has also done some great work recently in that in that area around um, recycled materials in roads. Thank you. Uh, Graham, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, um, I, I guess, yeah, it probably wasn't specifically looked at as part of this particular study, but I do know that there are different jurisdictions that are looking at ways of incentivising um, things like the use of recycled materials and looking at more innovative and sustainable ways of um, delivering their projects, um, particularly in the pavement space um, around use of recycled materials. There's a lot of work going on in that space at the moment. So yes, while it wasn't specifically part of this study, um, there is some really great work going on with that at the moment. Thank you. Um, well, guys, we have just one minute uh, left, so I'll just take one uh, last question. Um, so there are six comprehensive actions, but how do you see these being converted into implementation plans by each authority? So what are the, I guess, next steps um, um, from here into the future? I can probably jump in to start with on, on that. Um, so I, I guess, um, 
you know, there's a report that's flowed out of this this study um, with those those recommendations. We've got the short, medium, and longer term recommendations. Um, those, those will now um, feed into further discussions with the Australia's Project Delivery Task Force, and um, I would expect that that will then um, flow into to um, to further project work. Um, and some project work um, will flow out of this study um, to allow some of these recommendations to be progressed. Um, thank you. Amy, James? No, that was great, thank you. I, I think Graham's answer's fine. Great. Good. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that brings us to the end um, of the Q&A session today. And thanks so much um, to our presenters, Graham, Amy, and James. And um, thanks to all of our participants um, and your questions. We have a number of questions that we didn't have time to answer. We will do that in writing um, and email you the copy of the response after the webinar. So before we wrap up, just a few words um, on our next webinars. We have seven sessions coming up. Uh, whether you're interested in crash risk evaluation for road design or you're making investment decisions for road assets or keen to learn um, about the updates to the guidance on uh, interrupted traffic flow theory, there is a variety of uh, sessions for you to choose from. So please visit our website um, and register. Thanks again uh, for being with us today. We hope that the session was insightful and informative and will be useful for your work. Um, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a moment, fill it in, let us know what you liked or didn't like um, and what suggestions you have for future webinars. We do read it all and it does help us um, uh, to shape our future uh, webinars. So thanks again, everyone. Thanks uh, to our presenters. Uh, thanks to you all and stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Katarina. Bye. Thank you.